Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. You are listening to the Women's Podcast, brought to you by Green and Black's Organic Chocolate. Discover a different kind of dark. Welcome back to the Women's Podcast. I'm Roisin Ingle. Well, it's the Monday morning after the Halloween before, and I hope if you've kids, you managed to knock some crack out of the pandemic Halloween. Bobbing for apples remains a classic in our house, and I'm actually very hard to beat. So if you ever want to challenge me, you know, you'll be in for a loser. We also played a new one on me called Pin the Spider on the Pumpkin. So there was lots of improvisation going on in the absence of trick-or-treating. And obviously we ate too many sweets, but you're once in a blue moon and all of that jazz. Remember, if you want us to cover anything in particular on the podcast, you can email us on thewomenspodcast at irishtimes.com and you can find us on social at IT Women's Podcast. And remember to subscribe to us because it's great to see those numbers rising. I should also mention my glass half full conviction that after tomorrow when the votes are counted and people are making those early calls about the US election I think there's going to be a new president-elect of America and that as you know is going to herald in a better time for women all over the world. Are you with me? Come on we have to stay hopeful. I really believe as the late Derek Mahan said everything is going to be all right. We have to hope. We have to. Now, today's episode is an interview with a wonderful broadcaster, Anya Lawler, who spoke to Cathy Sheridan to mark her leaving the news at one and joining the Morning Ireland team. She's one of this country's most prolific broadcasters, and they spoke about her long career in RTE, but also about her own personal trauma when in 2011, Anya was diagnosed with breast cancer. You know, before you're going into it and they're telling you it's a year out of your life and the prognosis is, you know, 80% 80% of people will walk out here, they'll be fine in five years' time, which is a great statistic until you think about it, that one in five won't be, which isn't exactly as reassuring. And Oni has spoken candidly about her journey back to health, sharing details of her mastectomy and the months of debilitating chemotherapy in order to help raise public awareness. I think you are going to really enjoy this wide-ranging conversation between two wonderful Irish women, Anya Lawler and Cathy Sheridan. Anya. The first thing I thought of when I heard you were back in Morning Ireland was she knows what it's like. She's had, what, 16 years of getting up at 4.30 a.m. And I said to myself, what is she doing going back to those savage early hours? Well, it's it's only two days a week. Mary has to do a lot more of them than I do uh, because I'm still doing the week in politics. So it's it's a lot easier than it was when I was running around with kind of four kids and a sick father and all that kind of stuff. And that was hard. And that was, I was young. That's all I could tell you. I was young then. Um, but I, they'd asked me about it and I was thinking about it and scratching my head thinking about the earlies. And I was going in to do the week in politics one morning and it was 
during the lockdown and I'd been up till all hours doing my homework and I'd been up since all hours trying to do the makeup and, you know, look a little bit younger than and fill in the polyfill. And I stopped for a cup of coffee on the way into work. And this young Ranala daddy was there with his baby in his pouch and we got talking. And he said, uh, you're uh, uh, on your Lord. And I go, yeah, yeah, yeah. And he goes, you do Morning Ireland, don't you? I love Morning Ireland. And you're looking at him and you're thinking all those years on the news at one, all those years on the week in politics. And it's still so that I thought that was kind of, well, there you go. That's what defines you. And it would be fun to go back and have a go a second time around when it's it's new and it's different. And also maybe you're bringing something. So it's it's not just a repeat, if you know what I mean. For those of us who don't know, what's the difference between the news at one and Morning Ireland, apart from the savage early hour of Morning Ireland? Morning Ireland's a much bigger beast because it's kind of rolling from the minute, you know, the next day is rolling like a newspaper from the minute, you know, the edition goes out. You're working on the next. There's different teams. There's people working through the night. And of course, it's I think anything people wake up to, it's just got that big personal impact. The News at One is one of the biggest joys in the world to work on. You come in, you do the news of the day. It's very fast. And when it's over, it's done. And you wait till the next day. And you do. Now, there's, it, it's not about forward planning as much. It's much faster. It's a tighter group. It's much more. Um, so, so it's like a smaller, faster kind of thing. Um, and they're, so they're both great in different ways. Yeah, because I think it's very interesting how you've chosen to go back to something that's as stressful as Morning Ireland, because I know your whole thing is to avoid, you know, to be calm, avoid stress. And we'll get back to that later on. But it sounds like I'm intrigued by the fact that you chose to go back to that big beast of a thing, even if it is only two mornings a week. I still like I'm 59 now. But I still love what I do. I still love getting worked up about an interview and um, you know I love getting nervous you know you know when you get nervous beforehand have you thought of all the questions are you covering all the angles will you walk away from that interview thinking oh my god as soon as it's over the one question and it never dawned on you till the interview was over so I love I love trying to be like do the best interview you know the one that nails the really salient points every single time. So I still uh, get challenged a lot by that. Um, the difference now is I know we're lucky to have that while we're there doing that. There comes a point when that stops and that world moves on without you. And that's true of politics. That's true of media. Um, so I'm just enjoying this part of the ride, really. Yeah, because it's quite a ride at the moment, isn't it? There is... There is so much going on. I mean, you're, you're the, the U.S. elections for a start and then COVID and, and Brexit and all that sort of thing. Do any of these things really excite you, Anya? Are there any of those things where you say, gosh, yes, I really want to, want to get my teeth into that? Look, Cathy, I'm really sad. Even Brexit I find interesting. And I, I follow all these people on Twitter who write papers about it and, you know, on political and what's, you know, the diplomacy of it. Um, and I think... It, it's not that you expect everyone else to have to be such a wonk, but it's great to be able to translate that 
intelligibly to a lot of sensible people who just don't, you know, spend their time like me and you following all this madly. Yeah, because it's interesting that, you know, I, I sometimes wonder at myself, a daughter of mine pointed out recently that I am a complete 24 hour seven day a week news junkie and I am forever scrolling through Twitter if there's nothing else to distract me and I don't think it's healthy I mean are you you're not that bad are you no so when I'm working I work and I work 24 7 and I don't not work um like I'll take time off to cook the dinner or run out and plant some tulips or whatever but that's basically what I'm doing um then when I'm not working I'm up the allotment or I'm pottering around in the garden or I'm like you used to be, you'd be off with your friends. But, you know, these days, you, you know, if you meet them for a cup of coffee and a walk in the park, it's it's really exciting. Lovely, yes. So, and when I'm doing that, no, it's dead to me. You know, and that's part of our business as well, is the switch on and switch off. And you really have to work at that switch off because while I love it and it's part of me and always will be, it can be distorting. Yeah, because, I mean, I presume when, when you talk about getting nervous before an interview, um, is there a particular kind of interview that makes you nervous? No, I mean nervous in the sense, you're, you're nervous about, like, I love doing it. Like, if that, that red light thing is an addiction. That, that there's no point in denying that. And uh, I love the feeling of sitting in a studio asking people questions. Um, trying to get answers, actually. It's not about the... It's it's trying to get answers, you know, and that gets. And especially now, because it is so mad, Ted. So it's about trying to give people clarity. And then if they have clarity, it's easier to, you know, make up your own mind about things or whatever. But it, it's to reduce all the. All the spin from them, all the ego and spin from us as well. And, and to try and get clarity. That's an interesting, an interesting thing about the spin from us. Do you want to elaborate on that? <laughs> Journalism is so competitive now. So I've noticed a change. Now, maybe I was naive before and I wasn't seeing as much as I do now. But it seems to me that it, it is much harder. There's much more pressure uh, on a lot of reporters. Uh, and there's much more pressure on media organisations as well. You know, that there isn't the same security. So that and then, you know, we've all seen stories where everyone gets their, you know, knickers in a twist about something and we all know the details of it for about five days. And, you know, two months later, ask somebody what went on there and they couldn't really tell you. Um, so it's about when those things happen and you're in the middle of them, being able to step back a bit as well. That's what I mean. Because, you know, media can have its own group think, its own kind of 24-7 hysteria. So you need to be calm about that too. Absolutely. Anya, as you well know better than anyone, politicians really are the meat and the sandwich quite often here. And they're a fascinating breed. And you often see them, especially in Morning Ireland, I suspect, see them at their most vulnerable. You know, it's crack of dawn. They're in to answer the tough questions. You're there madly on your game and they know they won't get away with anything. In, uh, you see, you've seen them in tears, I suspect. Um, they're getting ready to apologise for something or whatever. 
Um, has it given you a certain sympathy for for politicians? Do you see them differently to how, say, a lot of people on Twitter see them, which is just as a bunch of scam artists? No, they're not a bunch of scam artists. Obviously, they all have big egos. You wouldn't be in politics if you didn't. You know, it's not for the shy and retiring. Um, I think it's, it's you know, I love my double pass. It's a privilege to have it. Um most of them are very nice people who are, who are working very hard and, and doing a very difficult job. And often, you know, we give out about politicians. What we're really giving out about is that the electorate wants two things at once. Um, and, you know, they're all competing to, to meet those various needs. I'm very careful about being respectful, but not getting close. I, I try not to at all and with politicians although I'll try and, you know, be friendly and humane. And I do think I, I'm not a fan of shouty-wouty politics, even though that can get a lot of traction and get you a lot of, you know, praise on platforms and stuff like that. I actually think you can't... I like seeing politicians as human beings when I see them in Leinster House. And I'd like to see and hear more of that on air and in all their different viewpoints. I, I And I think it's... That makes for better debate. Anyhow, maybe I'm old fashioned that way. I don't know. No, it's an interesting one, Anya, because I recall reading an interview recently with, I think it was the BBC's Kirsty Wark, who said that she had really grown weary of the gotcha style of interview, you know, that, that macho style thing, and that she instead leans towards what I think she called the quiet assassin approach, which I think is where you go to. Well, the thing is, and it, again, it's a thing I learned a long time ago in the Labour Court. If you're going to go in with an argument, you have to understand the other side's point of view. You have to want what they you really have to get into their head. And that was the only way you could, you know, advance your case successfully at the Labour Court. In an interview, you really I think you really what I try to do beforehand is work out what I think they're going to say and what they're going to want to say. And then I work out what the logical questions are about that and. If you're doing it right and your head isn't cluttered and you're letting yourself look at things clearly and you know enough, then you can do a good interview. You were saying somewhere that you can't pretend to buy into this kind of invulnerability, that um, everyone is human and is vulnerable in lots of ways. Um, is, is that something you learned from from when from your illness or was this something you always you always discerned anyway, that that really we're all fallible, we're all human or are you a rare human being out there? No, God, no. The, all of these lessons are hard learned. Can't <laughs> none of this comes easy. Um, and, you know, my own illness, my dad's illness, lots of stuff. You know, you, you get older and. Do you remember, I remember when I was young and I'd look at my mother's or my grandmother's faces and there was so much wisdom in them and so much resilience. And I used to think they were just born like that. And now I realise, you know, how hard it was for them and how vulnerable they must have still felt inside. But they had this, you know, that analogy of the grass that bends and um, is more resilient than the tree that's rigid and it cracks. Uh, so you do learn, even with a creaky older body, you know, to try and bend and bounce back. And everybody has that and everybody gets beaten up at some stage. And 
yeah, everyone has a story. And I think you have to really respect other people's pain as well. And I know, Anya, that that um, generally current affairs journalists like yourself would as soon poke an eye out as discuss your private life. But I'm afraid a lot of yours is out there now because of your illness. And one of the most memorable things I ever heard in Morning Ireland was the time you signed off announcing you were taking a break for medical reasons. At that point, did you know what was ahead of you? Had you any sense at all of, of the ordeal that was ahead of you? No, because, you know, before you're going into it and they're telling you it's a year out of your life and the prognosis is, you know, 80 percent of people will walk out here. They'll be fine in five years time, which is a great statistic until you think about it, that one in five won't be, which isn't exactly as reassuring. Um, So, you, you know, in the beginning, you're all kind of fired full of that courage. And. Like, I, I, it's funny, I said to a friend of mine today going because uh, that piece Una Malali wrote a couple of weeks ago um, about it's any kind of ordeal, really, and resilience. And actually, I used to always have such huge respect for the people, you you know, you'd be in there getting your infusion and the people who were going back into it a second time and they weren't going to get to walk back in going, oh, clear, you know, at the end of their treatment and all that kind of stuff. And you, do you remember the looks on their faces when they look at the other people around them? And so it's it's that you, you try and draw on, really, isn't it? Just because you're able to talk publicly about what you went through. You know, I'd look at lots of faces around me. The thing I remember is in that ward and just the respect you would have for the courage. People are able to sum up and the kindness as well. Um that's a long answer, but yeah. No, it, it, and, and, and it's, but it's, it's, it's an excellent one because I think it's something that I've noticed myself on you. It's that looking at those people who are managing the illness rather than, as you say, looking forward to the day when I'll have my last session and I'm out of here. Um, that takes some kind of courage and resilience that I fortunately didn't need. But you certainly endured your fair share of horror um, can you just tell us a bit about? I mean, you've made it. You've made um, your, your documentaries on you, and it's out there. But can you just remind us of what, basically, of what you went through? So uh, I was lucky. I had a HER2 positive cancer, which is um, used to be one of the more aggressive. Um, but because of the development of Herceptin, um, which only happened late in the last century, um, and only became available in Ireland early in this century. So it had only been in Ireland for a couple of years before I got sick. So I was very lucky that that medicine was there and my prognosis would have been very different otherwise. Uh, I was also uh, on a trial. So the Herceptin was combined with another another new generation um, HER2 medicine, uh, plus the regular chemotherapy, your, um, what was the tickle? Uh, trastumazab. So it was the... Um, the carboplatin, I remember, because I remember the taste of metal in my mouth and um, the uh, taxotere, the U-based one, uh, which is also quite nasty. Although there are nastier <laughs> brands of chemo recipes uh, that other people go through, much, much nastier. Um, but it was, uh, so it was tough enough. And then the uh, surgery and then the radiotherapy and then following that, the reconstruction. You had a mastectomy on you? Yes, full mastectomy. And lymph nodes removed. It had gone to the lymphs. 
Your mother was also, she also had a similar cancer, did she? I mean, was it, was it a genetic thing? Um, we looked into that um, when I made the cancer documentaries and my beautiful cousin Claire, who had also had breast cancer and a mastectomy and uh, whose father had had a rare form of brain cancer um, and had died from it. My uncle's, my uncle, my mother's brother. Claire took part in the programme very courageously for us and we were tested uh, to see was there a rare um in terms of the genetics, and, and, and nothing showed up. I should say that Claire has since died. And that's the other thing. You know, sometimes as time goes on, I nearly feel guilty talking about my audience. Like, I'm here talking to you. I, You know, Claire, Keelan, I know too many fantastic women who went through just as much shit, to be perfectly honest, and they're not here. And they give anything to be here. And I try and think about them lovingly every day and in a way that makes me grateful. Do you know what I mean? I do. I do. Um, nonetheless, Anya, we all know something that's not all that well understood in, in people who have survived it are the tales of cancer, as I think I've heard it called. You've got your life back, but things haven't really settled back in your body or damage was done that hasn't, that probably won't resolve itself. And I gather you're in pretty constant pain now. Yeah, it's just, so so I was unfortunate in terms of neuropathy, that's nerve pain. Um, I was unfortunate in terms of uh, my gut, um, which, you know, can happen. Um, And I've been unfortunate in terms of my joints and and bone pain. On the other hand, the more you have those kinds of reactions, uh, and I was on the hormone therapy as well uh, until the past six months, um, which gets rid of all the estrogen out of your system, even when you're post-estrogen. So it, takes, it, it multiplies all of those um, those issues. And and you're in pretty constant menopause, <laughs> which is uh, not fun. But the more reaction you have, the, it, it's also associated Created with a better response. Do you, do you know what I mean? There's nothing easy in, in terms of cancer. It's like, you know, like everything's trade-offs, like pandemics. Um, so while, yeah, that's that's a bummer. On the other hand, I've reacted really well to my medicine. And this is part of my body's way um, of letting me know that. I read somewhere that, that there's a stabbing pain that keeps you awake at night or wakes you up. Yeah, that comes... Some yeah, around my left rib cage, it's it's quite bad, and I'd get the nerve pain uh, in the hands and the feet uh, quite a lot. But you know, there are lots of techniques you can use. I mean, I have tablets when I'm absolutely stuck, um, but you try not to overuse those. Um, I have a glass of wine. You try not to overuse that. Uh, you go out in the garden. I do acupuncture, yoga. Um, the cupping is lovely. What is cupping? Um, oh, they, it's like old fashioned cupping and my, my acupuncturist does it. And like it's sore, but it kind of pulls everything up tight. So the only thing that can move is the fascia underneath, which is actually the bit that's hardest to get at. And oh, that's gorgeous. I really love that. Really? And you do, you can manage yoga even with your sore limbs and your uncooperating joints. Yeah, it's funny, isn't it? I, I, I can do a yoga class, but like walking down, walking up a hill. <laughs> oh my God, my poor hips. Like you feel so old. 
Um, but yeah, no, and you know, you use it or you lose it. So, you know, it's to kind of keep, so to do what you can. I don't climb mountains anymore, but I do do the yoga, yeah. Yeah. And I was interested to hear you that you turn to the radio in the middle of the night if you get the pains. Um, one of the things I discovered in, in recent years, I turn on Radio 4, which very often is very boring at that hour of the night, and I go back to sleep, no problem. <laughs> So I'm wondering, what kind of radio do you listen to in the middle of the night? Well, it used to be CNN, but they've gone off the radio. You can't get live CNN on the radio anymore. And it's wrecking my head because I just love Anderson Cooper. I I just love his work. Um, I love the slickness. I love the sharpness. Uh, I know that there, you know, there's a lot of polemic and stuff. and I could live without that. Um, But I'm listening to MSNBC now. I like Rachel Maddow, but it's just, it's not as slick, it's not as sharp, and their analysts just aren't as good. So I'm basically hooked on American politics through the night. And then if I want to give myself a break from that, I go to NPR, which is kind of slower American politics. And sometimes they do a bit of arts and culture. It's not all kind of, ah, you know. <laughs> and would you ever watch television in the night or in the morning? Is that a, is that a no-no? I tend to do the radio more at night because you're trying. Again, I'm, I try to turn off the television around 10 o'clock and, and not to be looking at my screen too much after that. Um, yeah, so, so the radio, it, it, it's kind of it's going into your head and you're kind of absorbing the information. And that means I'm kind of topped up on US politics most of the time. So you really are a bit of a junkie by the sound of things. That's <laughs> that's very telling. And like it's the debate tonight. And oh, my God, it's. I know we're going to have to stay up. Will you stay up? I'll go to sleep and then I'll wake up early and then I'll go into work. You are listening to the Women's Podcast brought to you by Green and Black's Organic Chocolate. Chocolate to savour. On you going back to the cancer and your role, your very public role and everything. One of the things that you often hear about cancer is how people lose their confidence in various different ways. You retrieved your confidence somehow. I think you may have lost a bit, did you? Oh, loads. I didn't want to go back to work. Yeah. Like I was on the floor. And you feel so invisible, you know, when when you're bald and shriveled. I remember um, Luke's was great. I loved St. Luke's and they had lots of services, you know, for cancer patients. And one of them was um, this kind of mindfulness class. And I remember one of the women in it talking about how she'd, um, during her treatment, when she was at her worst, walking down the street and she'd seen someone she knew and she'd waved over at this woman, but the woman hadn't recognised her because she looked so different. And I think everybody who's, you know, gone through that kind of bald, yellow, you know. Missing eyelashes. Experience, yeah, can identify with that. You have paid tribute to Professor John Crown for helping you retrieve that confidence by giving you this, by pointing you to this advocacy role on you. Um, that was obviously hugely important to you. I think what I really loved about that was from the get-go, because John so loves cancer, treating cancer and fighting cancer. And so from the get-go, he's one of those doctors who wants to give you a lot of information. 
And then it was through, like the night before I had my mastectomy, because I, through John, I'd gotten interested in cancer research. And then I read that book, The Emperor of All Maladies, and it just blew me apart, which is kind of, it's a book which is like a whodunit, and it's the history of cancer treatment. And I know it sounds really dreary, but anyone who hasn't read it should read it because it's a fantastic read. It's brilliant. And I really, because I was so conscious that new medicine was making such a difference to me and like that to so many people I'd see around me in that cancer ward. And it's so terrifically complicated and it's so terrifically expensive. So I thought it was worth making a program that looked at that science and how complicated and why it's so complicated and expensive. So through, through John, I got to meet Dennis Sleeman, who invented Herceptin, the medicine that saved my life. And I got to interview him the night before I had my mastectomy. And instead of lying in bed being scared about losing my breast, I had, you know, I was focused on that interview and I wore my wig. Um, and, and all of those things, because my brain was still me, you know, my body was getting whacked, but my brain was still me. And being able to continue, if you like, to work as a journalist helped me enormously. Yeah, that's amazing that you didn't suffer from that, what I called cow brain in my own case, where I did get get a brain fog. Um, did that not happen to you? And now, Cathy, in between, I became such an expert on keeping up with the Kardashians and the real housewives. And I still actually give myself a treat day every so often where I stay in bed and I just catch up on all the real housewives rows. And it's brilliant. And I love trashy TV. I love because people need it because there are lots of people who feel they just need a nice, comfortable cotton wool of entertainment that's not going to hurt. Um, and those things were fantastic for me. I can understand this perfectly. A Death in Paradise was one of my go to's. I don't, know, I don't know if you're familiar with Death in Paradise. <laughs> oh, there's a whole lot of them that I became very devoted to. People were despairing of me. So well done, John Crown, for, for, for directing you back. Dennis Lehman must have been very interesting to talk to at that stage. Yeah, he was. No, he's, and he's just an amazing man. And he, he comes to Ireland and gives public talks regularly. And again, that's the thing you find, right, right you know, the very best doctors. Um, the, you know, to be working on, on the front line of cancer every day is not easy. And they have to endure a lot. I, you know, I, in, in the course of, the, I, I, you know, I've seen doctors, you know, and, and sometimes there is a particular patient they get close to or, or a case where they're trying really hard and like that you're flinging every new medicine, you're fighting so hard to get access and it doesn't work or the trial rules don't allow somebody, you know, especially for somebody who's already been sick. And it, it is heartbreaking, but I love the passion that they go on bringing to their work and they want to share it with as many people as possible. And I think that's something that has changed in medicine. It, it's kind of become a bit, you know, so you get the best doctors now in areas like cancer, I think are much more into kind of, they're more democratic, they're more into sharing with their patients. Um, and I think that's something other areas of medicine could kind of look at and copy. Indeed. Now, Anya, sorry to labour this personal side of things, but you've also, you have four children um, and you have spoken out about the conceptions that didn't survive. Um, now, I don't know how, how happy you are to talk about this, but 
I know it's 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 something that October is Pregnancy and Infant Loss Awareness Month, and I'm bringing it up partly for that reason, but also because that wasn't smooth either. I mean, you have four children, which sounds as though you had four, you know, just perfectly smooth pregnancies and everything. But in fact, two of those babies were lost out of twin pregnancies. Two of those conceptions were lost. So hormonally, uh, things were always a bit technical. Um, so I'd had a couple of miscarriages in my early 20s. So I knew what it was like the first time on my, so my oldest, my son, like I thought I was, I'd lost the pregnancy completely. So the relief that, you know, I still had a baby, that made it a lot easier. And then, of course, I was lucky. I, I had a baby then born uh, six months later. Um, on the twins, um, I nearly lost them but because I bled on every pregnancy. But then I I'd tried so hard to get pregnant in between and that hadn't worked out. So I was just delighted to have them. And then on the last one, like, I remember I knew I'd lost that baby because I stopped feeling sick because I terrible, um, like 24-7 morning sickness, throwing up the whole time morning sickness. And I remember being in the hospital waiting for the scan and knowing for sure I wasn't pregnant and having, I'll never forget this, it was a chicken roll with mayonnaise because I was able to eat because I was so hungry. And then I remember going in and then she did the scan and she said, no, no, there's still a baby there. You've lost one, but there's still a baby. And I sat up and I said, no, you're joking because I had a chicken sandwich. And then I just threw up into the bin. So I knew there was still a baby. So so is pregnancy sickness, is it a kind of, is it, is it partly psychological? <laughs> no, no, I, I, just, I got sick as a parrot every single, and I used to envy people. Like who'd have simple pregnancy. But the thing is, nobody has a straightforward story, Kathy. I mean, mine was more technical at times than I'd have wanted. But there's lots of people, you know, I, I know people who've had seven, eight miscarriages and the heartbreak of that and going through it and or the people who go through IVF and it doesn't work. The only thing I've learned over time, and if, if this is any consolation to anyone, it, in my life, I have seen that one way or another, people who really, really want a baby tend to end up with a baby in lots of different ways. It doesn't always happen the way you want it. And, you know, and I, I am so lucky. You know, so many people try so hard and they don't have a baby. And, you know, I went through a bit, you know, there was ups and downs, but I have four children who... I adore, I wreck their heads. But anyhow, that's, um, I'm very, very, and look, you know, they're here and they're alive um, and they're safe and well. So yeah, I'm really lucky. Are you all kind of locked down together at this stage? Yeah, well, the, um, the two girls are here and uh, my adult son uh, as well is here. Um, uh, or the oldest, I mean, David. Uh, but I have a son in the States. Um, he just got married there recently. And I haven't seen him in a year, Kathy. And he's in Texas. And I don't know when I'll see him, you know, the way things are. And so that's one of the reasons I'm addicted to American politics. It's, it's nearly like a lifeline to Jack at the moment. Also, he's in a very interesting state uh, from the point of view of, of what might happen <laughs> in the Senate race anyway. He married a Democrat. So that's, that's a godsend and a blessing in my life. <laughs> yes, that could have been a disaster. 
I saw an evangelical woman on television yesterday saying that actually most of the families she knows are split down the middle about Donald Trump, which I thought was very interesting because all we ever hear is the evangelicals are absolutely on Trump's side. But apparently it's not as not at all as clear cut as that. Um, Anya, you're now 59, as you said earlier. Um, in about six years, I suppose, if RTE's retirement rules prevail, you'll be moving on. Or will you? Will you be one of the ones who'll want the part-time gig and, and won't be able to leave the red light addiction? It's 65. Um, and uh, no, I, wa- I want to be able to walk out the door. I want a life past of RTE. Which, like, I mean, obviously, I'd never say no to an opportunity to open my mouth. It's not that I'll go on being Gabby, but I don't. I want to go out and look forward and not look back. It's I've been really lucky, and I've been there, and I still am there. I want to go on being there and being um, contributing uh, until I go, until the very last minute. But you have to be able to let go. Because you've seen people who haven't. In all kinds of areas of life. I remember once meeting a politician who'd lost their seat. And they spent about 10 minutes moaning and groaning. And you're looking at them and you're thinking, go away. I know you're heartbroken, but you have a chance now. You have a life ahead. of You can do anything, you know. I've never studied in America. I've never studied in France. I would love to do those things in my life. I've never had the chance. I've always been working or rearing a family or, you know, minding a parent or or whatever. I've never had the chance to have a life. And Ian and I have never had that together. So, yeah, that's, so you have to move forward. And my grandmother lived till 98 and she lived like her 60s, her, she learned to drive when she got the old age pension and she took up drinking um, because she'd never drunk before. And she did uh, not drinking, but a drink. Um, and she lived a fantastic life. I remember the last time we, I saw her and we were talking about the broad beans. Um, and she was mourned by all of Wicklow Town when she died. So I'd like to be like my grandmother. I'm intrigued by the business of studying in France and in the in, and in the United States. What what do you want to study at this stage, Anya? Oh my God, I want to do. I, I'm um, for each of the. You know when you're stuck at home breastfeeding babies and stuff like that. So I I always like I'd have a big fat book that you know would be my go to on the couch when you were feeding. And um, I did um, the French Revolution in one, and I did the American Civil War on the twins, and I've always been fascinated by the stories of the Irish in the American Civil War and it's I want to tell that story in some way shape or form so I'd love to go to America and do work on researching all of that uh, and do something on that there's an amazing um, story there was uh, one night in the it was the place where they I've forgotten the names but it was the place where they were back a year later in this kind of swampy woody place where they'd fought this massive battle the year before and tens of thousands had been killed. And they'd fought the first day of a dreadful battle. Nobody knew who was killing who. And on one side of the lines, there was an Irish uh, bunch of soldiers. And they started singing a ballad about, I wish I was back home in Ireland. And from the other side of the lines came the second verse. The story of the Irish in the American Civil War is 
huge. And actually, there's a great, uh, you can follow it on Twitter. There's a great Twitter feed about it and stories crop up and death certs of people. Are amazing stories. And I just think it's an amazing part of our history. Um, and I'd love to explore it more and tell it more. So you're going to go and live in America and follow those stories. This and then, my son. <laughs> and, and, and go and live in France and follow the, the, the French Revolution. Yeah, well, France, I'd just love to live in France for a while because, you know, it would be lovely. This is a great plan. And in the meantime, Anya, your, your, your allotment, I presume, is, is still flourishing, is it? Well, actually, Ian does all the hard work there these days, which is brilliant. Um, and he's loving it. And he goes up there with our mad Jack Russell, um, who loves it. And um, yeah, no, and, and yeah, I've, uh, here I show you my squash. Look, there's all my squash in my windowsill. Can you see them? Oh, that's very impressive. That's really excellent. I'm very sorry that our podcast listeners can see this. And so you have you have vegetables, you have squash. It's obviously quite a sizable allotment, is it? Well, we started with one plot and then, but I have a very small garden, you see. So, uh, but you do need room because like, you know, once you stick in the fruit trees and bushes, you can't really grow vegetables around them. And then you need the room to ro- rotate the potatoes. I've got my garlic in now. It's funny how quickly you get into next year. You know, I've got my garlic in for next year now. Um, I've harvested the squash. I'll be harvesting the beans soon. The potatoes and onions and garlic are all in for the winter. There's kales and cabbages and leeks. There's herbs. There's fruit. Uh, I've tons of apple jelly made. There's fruit in the freezer for the girls' smoothies. Okay, you're exhausting me at this stage. This is obviously a very sizable allotment and I'm very, I should be inspired, but in fact, you're depressing me at this stage. <laughs> That's a, you probably have loads of room, you see. People who have loads of room kind of, you've got nature around you, you know what I mean? I know, but now I just feel guilty because the thing is you feel you should be doing something extraordinary with it. Anya, so right now, Morning Ireland, two days, two mornings a week, the week in politics, and so it sounds as though you have a, you've, 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 you've settled into a rather nice life. There's a, there's a really good balance there. I'm enjoying it. I really am. Um, and it's funny being kind of, it's nice to kind of push yourself every so often. And that whole kind of early in the morning jolt, you know, and trying to figure out if you got your head around everything early in the morning. Uh, the team are fantastic. Um, you couldn't, I mean, Mary and Rachel are just as good as it gets. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I really, I, I know I say this um, a lot and I don't mean to sound Pollyanna-ish and there's lots of days when I'm grumpy and giving out and, and I hate waking up early. I absolutely hate it. But I am really a very lucky bunny and, you know, I have my children, I have my home, I have my job. So many people have so much to worry about at the moment, you know. Think about carers a lot, people who are stuck in, you know, and again, the courage it takes to go through that kind of 24-7 and nobody's looking to interview you, nobody's telling you, you know, you're an inspiration or or, or anything. And they're the people who are listening every day. They're the people you need to, you want to give them the news. And you want them to be able to to absorb it in a way that doesn't feel like they're being hit in the head, you know? Absolutely. And you want to make them feel that they're being heard as well as broadcast too. Yes, yes. 
and their heads aren't being wrecked by constant carping. That's my current little little hobby horse, I'm afraid. On the one hand, I love an old argument. On the other hand, it gets very tiring just turning on the radio or television and just to hear two heads sniping at one another. So I very much appreciate your thoughts for the people out here who are listening, especially the people who are under such pressure. Anya, I'm so delighted to talk to you and you look wonderful, even in this little little frame that I'm looking at. And I hope we meet sometime soon. Oh, Cathy, that would be lovely. I would love that, actually. I really would. I really enjoyed talking to you, Anya. Thanks a million. Thanks to Oni Lawler and keep an ear out for her on Morning Ireland. That's all we have time for. The podcast is produced by me, Roisin Ingle, and by Suzanne Brennan and Jennifer Ryan with JJ Vernon on sound. We have to welcome Jennifer back from maternity leave. Uh, She's with us again now, so we are expecting to do even better things on the podcast in the next while with such a great expanding team. Mind yourselves and I'll talk to you next time. Hi, my name is Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic, and I'm excited to talk to you about Club Med. Club Med operates beach and mountain resorts and is the best all-inclusive getaway for families. They have Club Med Punta Cana, their flagship family resort, and many other options in Mexico, the Caribbean, and around the world. Club Med are the pioneers of the all-inclusive concept, which is the best way to vacation. Great for families, groups, or even solo travelers looking for land and water sports, delicious food and a place to make unforgettable memories. Visit clubmed.us, call 1-800-CLUB-MED or your travel advisor.